It's 6 o'clock in London, 1pm in New York, 1am in Hong Kong, 3am in Sydney, 10am in San Francisco and 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Greetings, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, good day to you wherever you are in the world. My name is Patrick L. Young. The IPO video live stream episode 008 is starting here. Let's get straight down to a worrying economic statistic. It's golden week in China, but it all looks a teensy-weensy bit more like it might not be so elemental. Indeed, it may barely trouble precious metals at all, with the initial statistics for the first half of the week against a backdrop of empty beaches as far away as Pattaya and Thailand and other resorts usually thronging with Chinese tourists this time. Consumer spending was down a staggering 31% year-on-year at the halfway mark of Golden Week. With that tarnish on the metals week, news emerges that a trio have won the Nobel Prize for economics thanks to their research on black holes. How long before the same work gains them, well, the Nobel Prize for economics to boot? Of course, most of us have at one point in time been looking for something we thought might be gold only to realize it's that glittering but misleading substance known as fool's gold. Fool's gold could be one way of summarizing where interdealer broker TPICAP have found themselves in recent weeks as a result of their latest attempt to improve the fortunes of a business which has proven itself of late to be an uncanny engine of well, value destruction for shareholders, albeit quite a neat vehicle if you happen to be remunerated as a key member of the brokerage's staff. Thus, the members of the management of TPICAP have recently made the announcement that they are negotiating to buy Liquidnet, another niche broker-dealer platform of sorts, albeit in the rather uncorrelated to the money market world of equities, predominantly with a little bond trading thrown in. Despite a wall of alleged professional management, it may be opposite to call time on the whole TPI cap experiment as, well, if LiquidNet is the solution, it's self-evident management have no idea what their problems are, let alone how to solve them. The stock market quickly saw through this ridiculous feint by TPI cap management and promptly dropped the stock by a pretty eye-watering 15% in one day alone to make the total return an eye-watering, well, more than 40% down year on the year alone. And to put it mildly, TPI cap has hardly been a stock market darling before this latest fiasco, even if it has added a few pennies back since last week's mini meltdown. The only way to make money out of this, I feel like, is to replicate my suggestion when DBI sniffed at Tullets a few years ago. When DB1 were looking at it, Deutsche Börse, I thought there was a possibility we could sell the rights to TV for an engrossing clash of culture TV reality show. Spin-offs like Real Housewives of Chingford would, of course, have been a side benefit. The good thing is that the problems of TPI cap are very different to the problems of Liquinet. The bad thing is I can't see how this gets reconciled, given that TPI cap management have a demonstrable track record of integration inability. LiquidNet had its moment in the sun, but that is setting. TPI cap resembles a group of increasingly panicked people running around in the dark, convinced the source of light will re-emerge. Whence it disappeared some time ago earlier, having failed to grasp the east-west solar axis. In essence, this deal makes as much sense as, say, Richard Burton having decided that after one of his divorces from Elizabeth Taylor, he would shack up with Zsa Zsa Gabor for a smoother, quieter life. 
In other news, for those wishing for a kinder, gentler politics, the US has descended into a tribal morass of name-calling and angry behaviour between entitled old people. And that was just the news the president was in hospital with COVID. The debate, well, the presidential debate, that was much worse still. Meanwhile, uh, despite said recent health issues and a bruising debate aside, it appears there remains gambling interest on President Trump still to win the Nobel Peace Prize. It'll be interesting to see, just to think it seems like it's ages away, but November the 3rd is coming closer than ever. It will be interesting to see. Clearly, a big question remains how the Fed's ability to bail out the US market can extend across the world. As to put it mildly, a concerned citizen of the global economy. Various news stories strike me as a good example of how the Fed might manage to keep the money flowing in America and indeed the US economy afloat for a period of time, depending, well, regardless of who wins the US presidential election. But then we see headlines like China's Evergrande, the world's most indebted construction company. Their bonds have been halted by the Shanghai Stock Exchange um, on fears of a cash crunch. Meanwhile, the Dubai builder of the world's tallest building is going to be liquidated. And that doesn't even inspire a lot of confidence before we get to analysis that reads like Hollywood 2020. I'll try that again. Halloween 2020 will be dominated by zombie companies and their ghostly balance sheets. I think that's all rather chilling. Not in a lackadaisical fashion, I hasten to add. However, today we've certainly got no chills. We've got a thrilling possible encounter. Thank you, Martin Watkins. I see you're already up and interested today, engaged to hear what's going to be said, because our guest is Andy Ross, a doyen of the interest rate markets in London, having risen through the ranks of the investment banking community to reach the giddy level of managing director at Morgan Stanley with the title of global head of listed electronic execution. And he was also the European head of derivatives clearing. Moving across to the parish side of the equation in 2016, Andy became the CEO of Curve Global, the London Stock Exchange's group's fascinating interest rate marketplace, a competitive pay play in the often cosy monopoly, duopoly, and never more than a tripartite oligopoly of interest rate futures exchanges who are fighting it out in the dollar, sterling, and euro currencies, to name but three. Andy is going to be talking all about stirring issues in the short-term interest rate environment and more, to which end I and Andy will welcome your questions today, but there is just one house rule. While Andy is, of course, a veritably senior employee of the London Stock Exchange Group, it's a big place over there at Paternoster Square and well beyond, well beyond the world. I mean, they're a huge enterprise altogether. So we're going to deep dive into Andy's yield-bearing silo. And that means, how might I put it? Well, let's put this refinitively. We're not discussing what the LSE Group is doing in strategic, acquisitive, antitrust or other terms. Ladies and gentlemen, the discussion today is all about interest rates, the world of interest rates and how Curve Global interacts with those. So attaching ourselves to the economic concept with more shades than a comedian, I speak, of course, about the interest rate yield curve. Let's talk interest rates. Andy, welcome. You are live on IPO Vid. Where are you today? Uh, hey, uh, Patrick, good evening, everybody. I'm joining you from the uh, rainy Gerrard's Cross, which is in Buckinghamshire, just outside of London, uh, prime commuter belt. Excellent. And so how have things been going for Curve Global? Obviously, it's been somewhat of a challenge for many venues, but you've had, what, 100% uptime throughout the COVID crisis? Yeah, look, so 
I've got to tell you that there are some things that I think are really impressive. If you look at the market in general, all of the exchange groups, whether you're talking us or the LSE or, or wider than that, and those are global, 100% up. And I think that to go to a situation where everybody's working at home and then suddenly, and that happens pretty quickly, and still maintain connectivity 100% of the time, no outages, no issues, and we've still done turnovers, we've still deployed new products, we've still done new things. I think it's a testament to just how well the uh, the parish and particularly here at the LSE, we run things. Um, and that quite, you know, juxtapositions a lot with Excel spreadsheet debacles in uh, in the UK and counting uh, data. Um, clearly, we're uh, a bit better than that. Yes, in fact, that's a very good comparison. The UK National Health Service, having recently lost 16,000 people off their records because their database was actually an Excel spreadsheet and they missed the fact that there's a capacity constraint in Microsoft. So I agree with you completely, Andy. It's absolutely brilliant. What the parish has done is incredible. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've got any questions or comments you'd like to ask of Andy in relation to the wonderful world of interest rates and everything related to Curve Global and indeed the various exciting aspects of that marketplace, do please let us know. So tell us a little bit, I mean, Andy, give us an idea about the futures markets, competition. How did Curve come into being? Well, let me let me first of all say one other thing. I, I should have said when I... I don't want to appear to be dodging a question. So Curve Global, though, didn't have a particularly great COVID, I have to say. I mean, um, we are, as you just said, someone who's trying to bring competition. We're trying to change market structure in futures. And perhaps I can come back and talk about that in a moment a bit more. But candidly, when people run to home and when the curve is, is flying around all over the place, you don't want to be uh, worried about saving a tenth of a tick here or... Uh, looking to margin more efficiently, you just care about being done and and getting your risk transferred. And so, frankly, our volumes fell quite significantly through the COVID crisis. The good news for us is that for the last couple of months, we've seen 100% growth in those volumes. We've seen a significant bounce back, and even today, we're we're, we're seeing more and more volumes. So, um, we feel like we're doing a few things. We'll talk about those hopefully later as well. But you know, I think COVID was difficult for anybody and particularly difficult for new people who are doing something challenging. And then Patrick, to answer your question, you know, what, what about futures markets? Well, look, for those of, who, those of us who've grown up in these businesses, um, I remember the day when people would wander around the city in bright colored jackets and they would stand on trading, trading floors and wave at each other and, and buy and sell um, uh, futures uh, with a plethora of hand signals. And what happened was the liquidity from each of those um, exchange pits um, migrated onto electronic platforms. And while that, I think, has been beneficial, uh, clearly in terms of price dis uh, discovery and transparency, what it's meant is that you've done a lot of innovation. The products have moved into regional silos and they've stayed in regional silos. They've moved from the regional pit into, um, into an electronic pit that is still based in a region. So if you want to trade yen, you go to Tokyo, you want to trade Aussie dollar, you go to Sydney, Chicago for US dollar, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you look at that to compare that, say, with an equity market or an FX market or an OTC interest rate market, it's not like that. They're global markets. You trade on global platforms. You can trade on TradeWeb on a multitude of interest rate swaps. You can trade on Bloomberg on a multitude of interest rate swaps. Across the FX piece, but, you know, a number of platforms, FXO, Reuters, EBS, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
you look at uh, um, equities and then there's obviously the LSE, but then Vodafone is listed, I believe, on 23, and it changes because various things get listed and, and approved all the time. But I think it's listed on 23 different exchanges or MTFs across Europe. So there's a huge plethora of competition. If you want to trade an interest rate derivative, you can only go to one place. And that means you trade in the way that you're told to trade. You pay the fee that you're told you have to pay. And you can't change anything because those participants make a lot of money out of that service. And my mission, the mission that we set out to do here is bring competition to the market, to change market structure. And I've got to tell you, it's bloody hard work. But it's really enthusiastic that I get up every day and every single day we move this business a bit further forward. We get more people interested, more people excited. It's generally um, great to feel like you're doing something that will benefit all of us, whether we're pension fund holders, whether we're asset managers, whether we are uh, individual investors. Something that is minimizing the cost and bringing innovation to the market, I think is a benefit for us all. Really interesting. Okay, so you're bringing competition innovation. Give us a little bit more granular understanding of how that actually works in practice, please. You've told us about the top tier and trying to make it you know, global markets, as you say, like, like TradeWeb or Bloomberg or any of the swaps platforms. How do you go about actually delivering this? Okay, so the first thing we do is the exchange that we run on is part of the London Stock Exchange. I believe that generating a new exchange from scratch is so difficult. Partly you've got all of the regulatory hurdles, but as we've just discussed, the technology needs to work. It needs to be robust. It needs to be consistent. And you need to be able to do that so it's on, um, you know, without breaking. And, and, and so that is not an easy thing to do. Um, when we think about the resilience that you need to run these things, we, we feel like we're, we're trying to compete with uh, nuclear power stations in terms of the level of backups and testing and, and process to make sure that the, that the events don't occur. So first of all, we're part of the London Stock Exchange. Secondly, we clear curve interest rate derivatives. And these derivatives, by the way, are absolutely, from a risk perspective, identical. There might be a subtle difference, like the size might be different for some reason that we can discuss perhaps. But ultimately, the risk curve, the, 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 the marking, the fixings, they're identical products. And so we take these products and we list them in, in Curve, London Stock Exchange, and we then clear them at LCH. And what LCH do with those is they say, oh, look, these are interest rate products. They look pretty much like our swap interest rate products. Why don't we margin all of these together and give people a significant benefit? Now, look, it depends on the number of currencies you trade. There are clearly examples where if you're just trading uh, euros, um, you might have an advantage of just keeping everything in one silo. But every time we've looked at a client's portfolio, every time we've worked with someone, everybody always trades more than that. They trade some sterling, they trade some Aussie, they trade some Canada, they can trade some US. Nearly everyone trades US. And so the ability to offset your futures with any of those interest rate currencies and risk is clearly a benefit in terms of carry cost, margin, capital. And in a world that seems capitally constrained, and frankly, I suspect post-COVID recovery is only going to get more capitally constrained. The ability to minimize the cost of trading um, in terms of holding positions and minimize the cost of trading in terms of trading those positions 
is clearly something that we think is beneficial to customers and clients the world over. So let me ask you one very quick technical question. This is fascinating. We're going to carry on. The London Clearing House, if I remember correctly, has a series of different pools for clearing. So are you, you're not actually in the swap clear pool. You're in the separate exchange traded derivatives pool, but you have an interaction where you can cross margin with the other pools. Is that right? Yeah, look, exactly. So if I, if I use some of the US nomenclature, perhaps just for, for ease of understanding, um, OTC derivatives are, are, are held in what is called a 4D account. And then futures, because uh, these are foreign futures, will be held in a sequestered account. And what happens is if there is um, a benefit from moving the futures out of the futures account into the OTC account, then that's what will happen. And that migration that occurs on that, that, that movement between them um, is about minimizing the total margin. And so when you move the futures out of the futures pool, it moves from a futures style margining, a couple of days, um, into the sort of OTC style margining, sort of five plus days. And so therefore you think, well, isn't that going to make the margin go up? No, because you need the uh, sort of similar risk parameterization within that. And there's a tool at the LCH called Spider that, that does that. And more than happy to run analysis um, ad nauseum with people on that. But clearly you need customers to be able to, to see those benefits as well. And a number of prime brokers offer that service to their clients as well. So the advantage here is that um, you do get that migration, but it only ever happens when um, the margin benefit is is um, uh, realized. It's sort of like, I guess, a doctor taking a Hippocratic oath, right? It, it will never do any harm to your margin. It'll only make it better. That's quite fascinating altogether. And obviously a huge advantage for you being on the back of what is the absolutely unbelievably huge swap clear pool in particular of OC, OTC derivatives that LCH has managed to garner and goes back to your platform point because of course LCH is effectively dominant in what 26 27 different currencies worth of derivatives these days which a lot of people don't realize that the vast bulk of Polish Swadesh swaps are cleared at LCH rather than cleared in Warsaw for example okay so that's really fascinating in terms of understanding the the mechanics of what the advantages are for the customer but as you said i mean building a new exchange can be incredibly difficult difficult you're within the lse groups overall technology stack and business and so on but at the same time connectivity to clients is a huge issue look i, th I think that's right and i think there are a number of barriers of trade so the, the old truism of liquidity begets liquidity is absolutely correct. But um, as a new exchange, there are a variety of things. First of all, we have our own data center, so you need people to connect to your data center. That is work and time. We then don't charge the data out of that because we think that, one, we shouldn't charge for it. I'm not saying that data hasn't got a value. We can talk more about data perhaps later. But I'm saying we currently don't charge for data. Um, but then every single piece of technology or platform that people want to use, it needs to be connected. And so whether you use a Fidesa or a TT or a Stella or a CQG or a, a, a none, um, each of these needs to go through a conformance and, and be connected. And so because there is rightly so a lot of competition within those spaces for all of the reasons we just said competition is good, like driving innovation, keeping prices under control, um, uh, migrating to better technologies, whatever the, the, the situation is. It means that ultimately they have to do some work. And, and so there's like a barrier of entry. And so in some ways I think of us as um, 
I think of us as a little bit like the wholesaler and that we need to make sure all of our products are in all of these kind of uh, shops so the customers can go buy them. And so that requires us to work extensively with those uh, participants and often, frankly, pay them some money to um, encourage them to be available, uh, providing an incentive program and so on and so forth. Because if they don't provide access, then we really struggle. And so, first of all, you need that. Then secondly, um, I would argue that most um, new exchange groups and new exchanges have tried. And look, let's be clear that we could all list off the top of our head a number of these that have been attempted over the years. And I think they've all roughly gone on, on a scheme like this, which is we're going to be cheaper, we're going to be much nicer, and we're going to buy you some cocktails. And I generally think that's not a great strategy. That's very interesting altogether. And actually, I'm going to switch gears slightly for a second because I'm going to introduce a question that we've got from Jake Pugh, none other than our excellent guest in IPO 007, the previous edition. Jake, good evening. Great to hear from you. So in terms of the key aspects of the curve offering, lower fees, free data, portfolio margining, execution algorithm, can you talk to the relative importance of each for the different market participants? Great question. Okay, it is. And I think there's a couple of things. First of all, I'm slightly upset that I'm 008 and Jake was 007. I think anyone looking at us would recognize that I'm much more like uh, Daniel Craig than, uh, than Jake Pugh. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, I think that if you look at this and you have to look at it through the eyes, I believe, of the purchaser. And so who is the purchaser? The purchaser is the trader, the person pressing the button. And so um, the first of all is you've got to have um, something that is interesting for them. You've got to have better pricing or the same price. You've got to have liquidity at the touch and things happening at the touch. And so we think that low fees, in fact, Curve Global has introduced a 12-month free execution and LCH have matched that with um, at least six months, perhaps longer, of clearing free fees. And so the reality is that in that situation, that's nice. In that situation, um, we think that low execution cost is really important. But the other thing we do is we allow people to trade a future at any price on that they would like. So if you imagine the market is 9900 in interest rates, you've got a choice. You could buy at 100, sell at 99, or you could sit there on the, on, on the bid and offer and hope that somebody else lists you. Or you could trade a FRA or a single period swap. And as such, I think they're kind of interesting because a FRA or a single period swap, you can trade anywhere in the curve you like. And so fundamentally, why I make that point is that we allow people to trade between that 99 and 100. You can call a broker up, and there are a number of brokers that are servicing us on this. And great coverage. Again, one of those barriers to entries that we've, that we've built a huge network of brokers over the last couple of years. And so those brokers come along and they can negotiate a bilateral trade between the bid and offer. So in terms of what our USP is, Jake, to answer your question, I think it's got to be about price. It's got to be about low cost. And then at the end of the day, you've got margin savings. But I view price in terms of execution as the cake. I view low cost as in terms of the icing. And then I perhaps the margin saving is the cherry on the top. 
Fascinating. I'm most impressed you got through that with such passion so rapidly because it's a question that could have taken us hours to actually address. Really, really useful. The debate about who was the better 007 or 008 will obviously carry on in the hostelries of London for some months to come when I, when I see both of you. So looking at what you're doing, the challenges, the connectivity, Let's go back to actually, we, we mentioned it briefly because you talked about data and data competition. But let's you know, think about that a little bit more because obviously there is a cost to data, but yet you're giving it away. Look, uh, there, there are so, first of all, in general, um, I have a view that competition is good. And in futures markets, there really isn't a lot of competition for data. And so I think that's bad. I think in general, lack of competition is bad, but I think you can clearly see it in the pricing that people have to pay for, for data around futures markets. I think that competition is a good thing, therefore. I give it away for free because I'm not sure anyone would pay for it. So I actually want to be, I'm a wholesaler, as I've just said, I want to be in as many shops as possible. So if I can put my point of sale up, which is pricing availability in as many places, I will, because I think that's clearly in my advantage to generate some competition. Um, the last thing I would say then is that I don't believe data should be free. I, I mean, I understand that the, 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 there's an argument that people say, look, I'm putting that price in. Why am I not getting, why am I not getting that data out again? Well, you know, I've generated that price. It should, it should come back to me, right? But hold on. You've got, to, you've got to harvest that data. You've got to cleanse that data. You've got to store that data. You've got to normalize that data. You've got to make it available to everybody in real time. Um, you've, got, you've got to store it forever so that people can come back and use it. All of those things um, is all of those things are, I believe, mean that there is a price for data, and clearly there is because people are willing to pay for it, and it, it makes you allows you to make better decisions. So, there, but I think a market where you don't have a lot of competition means I'm not convinced that price is exactly right, and so I think the curve, whether we're talking fee pricing or data pricing or whatever, I believe is something that is. The competition really is additive in that space. Take the equity market, huge amounts of competition, huge amounts of, of, of lower fees. We could talk about that ad nauseum. Well, it's interesting because I think you've got the likes of some parties in the USA like IEX who don't charge for data because they also view it as just being advertising. It's screen real estate to get out there. And also I'm interested though, perhaps is the issue for you as well, the fact that you know you say you're, you're not really that keen to charge for it. Is it because you still don't have sufficient liquidity to be a really holistic view? And what I'm thinking about here is the old days of when you had a Reuters terminal and you had five or six IDBs. In fact, in those days, they were called money brokers, all wanted you to pay for their data. And actually, the truth was you had to buy three of the packages to even get to 60 percent of the marketplace. And you still could lose a lot of information. So I don't think it's like that. I feel like an interest rate derivative, particularly because they are so normalized and you have the, you know, the 25 points across the curve or whatever out to five years. And you don't have hundreds and hundreds of products. And so I believe you can do that. And, and we hire a, an independent uh, company that they call Big XYT. Um, uh, and, and what they do is they take market analysis of our data versus other people's data in the market or the other people who are listing similar style products. And when we look at it, we are the best price a fraction of the time, the same price the majority of the time, and the, a worse price a fraction of the time, which is what you'd expect in any market. But I think our data, therefore, is saying that it's valuable. 
it, it, it is accurate in terms of a daily marking. And as I mentioned before, these products that we're talking about here are all cash settled. So there's no um, kind of uh, the, the, in the product settle, you know, the same underlying index is used between all of these exchanges that we, we look at. And so there isn't some kind of a delivery risk or I'm, I'm long one versus short other. I might get a different settlement price. There is none of that. So I feel like um, more generally, yeah, I guess uh, I don't feel like in our space, it's uh, a case of you need lots of different people to provide it. Uh, Ali, your money broker example. I more feel it's a case of people have had one place that they can get all their data from and it's bundled up in a set of packages and I've been paying for that data for a long time and I don't even really realize I'm paying for it. And so I just kind of do it as opposed to really analyzing, well, actually, perhaps you can trade on curve and get a better execution and you've got lower costs. That all requires quite a lot of work. And so nobody screams in the morning, I must find a new place to trade my interest rate derivatives. I must have a new Stirs futures exchange. So we have to go and sell that and work that pretty hard. I think that's really, really interesting. And it's so interesting to hear that you're not, you don't have the same fragmentation problem that the money brokers, the IDBs used to have 20 years ago. You're seeing holistically what's happening in the in the curve. And I suppose, though, one of the things that's obviously been a big impact upon us has been regulation. And we're going to get to that in, in just a second. But let me say, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Patrick L. Young. I'm here with Andy Ross. He's the chief executive of the London Stock Exchange Group's Curve Global, an exciting initiative that's been going since 2016 to, well, truly radically change the face of the interest rate marketplace. And that's across currencies and across every aspect of the futures trading therein. We've had some interesting debate so far. Feel free to send us your questions if you've got any. And meanwhile, if you like the tone of the debate, don't forget you can sign up for a free trial to Exchange Invest, which is the daily newsletter of the Exchange Invest business, where you can see and read my voice daily as I piff around the important matters of moment. Now, we've got a very, very passionate guest. He's talking to us about the future of exchange rate markets. Andy, one of the issues we haven't actually really touched upon, you mentioned it briefly earlier on, is regulation. And at the moment, of course, you're in a kind of perfect storm of the tailwinds of MIFID 2 and MAIR and those sorts of things. And we'll get on to, there's some other elephant in the room thing that's just escaped me for the moment. We'll talk about that in a moment. Tell us a bit about what's been happening with the sort of the European Union's end of things and also the US even 10 years back with Dodd-Frank. Look, I think that um, we've seen, um, I think the, the biggest change we've seen in financial markets is not to do with EMEA and not to do with um, many elements of, of, of Dodd-Frank, but to do with the amount of rules, but a little bit perhaps with Volcker, but a lot to do with the rules around the amount of capital that people have to hold within the banking system. And so we've seen a change in, in, in the structure of markets and we've seen a development of um, banks having a lot of people now outside them with huge um, kind of flow based market making trading businesses that are um, what I think would broadly be bundled under the uh, PTG uh, umbrella, principal trading group umbrella. Um, and though while some may not like that, I, I think that's a useful description for them. Um, and I think that's been a huge change to the environment. Secondly, I think that um, because there's just different participants doing different things. 
Secondly, if anything, we've had a, a consistent speed and focus on electronification of markets. Um, 20 years ago, we would have floors of broking houses and, 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 and people trading themselves. So locals effectively trading on a screen in their own, you know, almost garage type setup. Now there are some super professional groups, perhaps with offices all around the world at one end of that spectrum, or electronic trading firms at the other. And I think that there's definitely a, a change in terms of the market, in terms of either big and, and um, super fast, or electronic and super fast, or big and scaled, or electronic and fast. And if you're somewhere in the middle, I think it's a challenging time as a result of, of, of these things. Now, lastly, for us as a as a as curve, I think that the fact that there is principally about competition. So I think a lot of Amir's about competition. There's going to be some um, the next Amir review that came out a day or two ago is talking about how do we think more about data and, and we just talk about in terms of consolidating. I think that's a really interesting thing. Now, people talk a lot about open access and um and I don't really get that in a derivative sense. It's not like we want to take curve futures and clear them at ICE or take them and clear them at Eurex. Um, partly because I think that the, the, the value chain there has been distorted where all of the revenue has been put in the clearing side rather than the exchange side as a kind of a barrier to entry to, to stop that occurring. But, but secondly, I think that realistically we're saying we want to create a competing infrastructure where we have swaps versus futures at LCH. And so we think that anything that is supporting customers getting a better price, having more innovation is where we're supposed to be. Excellent. Absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate the, the clarity. And we've got a question here from Martin Watkins. It's moving us slightly further along in the regulatory curve. We're hitting that topic of Brexit, the big B word of the moment. And Andy, Martin Watkins, he's asking you, how do you expect markets to react if we're trading under whether it's outgoing EU regs or WTO rules or whatever might take place by the time we get to the 1st of January next year? So, uh, th thank you, Martin. Um, appreciate that. So, I'll tell you what we're going to do at Curve, and then I'll answer some, uh, maybe I'll make a couple of broader comments. What we're going to do at Curve is we're going to stay onshore in the UK, and we're going to list the series of currencies. We've listed already euros, and we're going to continue to trade those euro currencies onshore in the UK. And my concern for European participants is that the rules inv inadvertently cut them off from other sources of capital and liquidity, such as on onshore UK, onshore um, markets. And I think that's, our, I guess, my biggest concern for them. I'm already view that we're a small market. So moving and trying to split our liquidity between some onshore and some offshore, I just don't see that working for us. And so we're going to stay here. And then we have been very active in talking to as many people who, who will listen that we should focus on what customers want we should be as open for business as we can be we should make it as easy to attract liquidity and trading into the uk and be the place where it is the best environment to connect to report to trade no matter where you come from in the world and that we should be as open for business as possible not um throwing up as many barriers as possible because ultimately capital can move and so um, I think that there will clearly be some bumps in the road um, if we end up on a hard WTO um, style 
response. I'm uh, sure that is the case, but but the reality of that situation is that I believe that the market's ability to adapt is fundamentally brilliant, and we have a huge number of smart people who can figure out how to make it all work under whatever conditions there are. But does that bring up opportunities? Of course it does. And so we have a bund product is not particularly liquid. But if if there was a situation where that it became very hard for people to access European markets because of European rules, then we'll absolutely look to try and win as much business out of that as we could. I think that's a fascinating answer. And actually, we've got another great question coming for you in just a moment. But first of all, I want to sort of move the discussion on slightly. Thank you very much, Martin Watkins. Of course, also, you were an excellent guest during the course of season one. And it's a pleasure to hear from you once again, Martin. Really, really useful question. And therefore, moving on from Brexit, obviously, we get to the elephant in the room. LIBOR and its replacements. Just give us a sort of a one, two minute overview of your thinking and where we are in the process overall. Um, okay, so LIBOR is um, an interesting and challenging um, uh, uh, thing. It's like it's it's fourteen months away from potentially moving to from the uh, world. Uh, it, it, it's from ceasing the publication of LIBOR. And so, what do I mean about that? Well, individual firms submit data to LIBOR. And those terms, firms take risk and they have costs associated with that process. And as such, that is challenging for them. So when the FCA says, guys, you don't need to do that anymore, I can't see that there's this huge queue of people um, queuing up to say, oh, let's take that more risk. I, I really like the idea that someone might go to jail for putting in a not wrong number here. And so that that is, I think, a real risk that LIBOR starts to go away. Now, clearly... The guys at the IBA have done a brilliant, uh, the ICE guys have done a brilliant job here in cleansing that. And I take my hats off to them. But I think that um, that is a huge challenge to the market. Now, very recently, and we're going to publish this, uh, we, we hired a, a firm called Acuity to do some market research on how prepared the market was for LIBOR transition. And what was really interesting about it is that in the futures and OTC space, people were pretty prepared. But in some of the spaces like the loan market, they really weren't. And then some of the interconnectivities within the market, like cross-currency swaps and what's the protocol and what, what fallbacks do they use and, and, and what discounting are they on? And are, are they a LIBOR-based or are they a, uh, an RFR-based? And so there are a variety of things within the market that have gone well, issuance, swaps, OTC, et cetera, um, and a variety of things that have still got a lot of work to do within that. Fascinating. And so let's ask you a quite granular question, actually, Andy. You've demonstrated your passion for Curve. It's a fascinating opportunity that's coming through here. And I want to go to your question from another excellent interest rate expert, a veteran of life nowadays with Bloomberg's on their indexing side, Jonathan Seymour. Good evening, Jonathan. It's lovely to hear from you. Andy, you, Curve, made a good start with Sonia Futures. Is LIBOR cessation and transition to Sonia-based derivatives your single biggest opportunity to secure the long-term success of Curve Global? So, Jotty, well, I think, first of all, thank you very much for the question. Um, uh, it is a huge opportunity. 
whenever there is change in the market, by definition, there's an opportunity. And so we're, we're kind of passionate to, to seize that opportunity. And we're working very hard at it. We were the first to launch um, a Sonya Future. We're actually just launching a, a 1 million version of it in a, in a week or so's time. We offer a product that allows people to trade between the LIBOR and the Sonya Future. You can clear your Sonya Futures against your Sonya Swaps your LIBOR futures and your LIBOR swaps all at LCH and margin it together. So there's some huge opportunities um, in, in managing that transition here. Yes, I would argue that we are in a good spot and, and that this is all to play for, yes. Would I say it's the only spot? No. And, and what I mean by that is, as I've said, I don't think we want to be 100% of any market. Well, actually, that's a lie. I'd clearly love to be 100% of the any market. But the market should be more mature than that. We would like to be a big, meaningful player in a market. We'd like to have stability where we we're a large percentage of a market across a number of products. If Sonia was one of them, that would be fantastic. But clearly, that is a kind of a step on our evolution. It is not the primary focus, and it is not the only uh, spot that we want to go to. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for the question. Let me add a follow-up to that then, Andy. I mean, Jonathan has mentioned Sofer and Sonia, but at the same time, do you really think that it's going to end up being so simple that we're only going to have one or two benchmarks, or are we going to end up in a much more fragmented world? Well, I, I think it's really interesting. So if you look at um, even the Bank of England very recently acknowledged that for some of the derivatives, they, they're going to need some kind of term rate and that, that, that perhaps not for every daily trading, but, but maybe for, for people who are less sophisticated, that they, they're going to have to figure that out. And so, for instance, I know that um, the, the guys at FTSE are looking at a, a, a term rate in, in, in Sonia to help solve those exact type of problems. And so even within an RFR, you've got the overnight in arrears, the the forward-looking term. So A, there's that. And then if you take something like dollars, I think that's a fascinating market. And I mean, you've got a question about uh, Fed funds. You've got a question about SOFA. You've got a question about something like a Meribor. And we've clearly, you know, our Doc Sanders thing, which is really interesting. We've clearly seen a variety of people, um, clearly seen a variety of people that have... Um, uh, offered of, uh, of these indexes. And so are they all going to, um, are all of these flowers, all of these indexes going to bloom? I think if the market infrastructure, as we've discussed, the so clearing houses, et cetera, support them, then I think there is a chance they could. But yeah, look, are we ending, going to end up with a term RFR? I actually personally don't think so. Not 100% sure. Don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is that the official sector are absolutely adamant that they don't want something else replacing LIBOR um, that has some other inherent problem that they haven't yet thought about and that is potentially impacted in the future. But that doesn't mean that there are not a huge number of edge cases where you're going to need some kind of term structure. I just don't think it's daily interest rate trading. So I think that's I think that is my view that you're going to see a lot of a product, a lot of evolution, and what do you need it for? And if you, if you, um, the variety of people who've discussed this a lot um, uh, around the market, and in fact, next week, 
at uh, LSE, we're running a, a whole series on uh, the end of LIBOR and what it means. Um, and so if anyone wants to get in touch with me, I can share that information. But more generally, I think that we are going to see different people have different questions. Does it, do I care about interest rates or do I care about funding risk? And so when you get down to it, it's like what risk are you trying to manage? And having a generic tool that you think manages all of them is an imperfect hedge and perhaps not where we need to be. Quite fascinating. So do you think then that with the potential for fragmentation of the market per se, you mentioned, for example, uh, Richard Sanders, fascinating Ameribor. And I don't want to talk about that specifically. I'm hoping that we'll have Richard coming along and talking about it specifically in the near future, actually, because he's obviously the best evangelist for his own product. But is the market likely, therefore, to segment in terms of very specific organizations finding benchmarks to be best for their operation? Uh, I think, well, am I 100% certain? No. Do I think that is a possible outcome? Yes. I'm not sure it is a probable outcome. It's probably a 30-40% likelihood that that will be that allow that that will occur but i think that you you can't underestimate the challenges of all of the infrastructure which is where we started today um in terms of being able to sort of wholesale um that out to a uh, to a number of people but let's be clear there is a huge challenge here and people are absolutely aware that they don't want additional risks that they can't potentially hedge and whether that's balance sheet management for banks whether that's fixing risk for corporates, there are a number of these problems that people would like to, to mitigate. And so, yeah, I think that there is a, a solution there. And I suspect actually that, that in corporate-driven investment banks and, and, and retail banks servicing their customers will have some really interesting both hedging to do versus their balance sheet and, and client solutions to provide, not just in the transition, but in ongoing risk management tools that will be um, add probably complexity to the market, but complexity that is driven by customer need rather than um, uh, F9 spreadsheet, CDO squared, something or other. <laughs> it's quite fascinating, isn't it? Because the whole nature of interest rate risk has suddenly been blown apart, where before people seemed to be remarkably satisfied with what they were doing with LIBOR just a few years ago. Look, I, I think, I think that's right. But let, let, let's take two two points. First of all, um, I want to reiterate. I think the guys at IBA have done a good job. But LIBOR, in some way, is is tarnished, and the um, the idea that we've got people going to jail around this, right? And so people are nervous about that entire framework that that is a. I think a, a, a potential problem that in terms of people's minds, I don't want to be near a libel thing. People don't like that. People went to jail with it. There is a, there's definitely a challenge there. Um, so that's the, I guess the first point. The second point is um, in volatile markets where yield curves were moving around, where we had huge amounts of interest rate risk moving up and down the curve, then actually the fundamental bases of where they were being marked, whether it's three sixes, six twelves, whatever, were important, but but a second degree or second order effect 
in comparison to the outright delta moves of 50 basis points um, up or down in terms of yield curve shape, whatever. In a yield curve that is flat and unvolatile, then all of a sudden the kind of discounting risk or the basis risk around around what your product is and what you're trading and whether it's where it's fixing, it could become a huge determinant in, in the, the economic payoff therein. And so one of the things we're successful about with Curve is saying, look, we've got that ability to trade in the middle because in a low volatile environment, that's what you want, some, something to be able to trade at your exact point. But also you want to know that while you've made the call right on risk, you're not losing something in some second or third degree risk around funding or credit that you didn't really was understood or what you didn't understand was implied within the underlying benchmark that you were using. Quite fascinating. The more you look at it, the more complex it becomes. And we haven't even actually talked about something which you mentioned earlier on, which I found very interesting, which was how much the yield curve has been moving. I mean, physically, the movement of the market during COVID, because from my perspective, I sort of think, well, you know, Maybe it's just my inner Yorkshireman, Andy, but I think, you know, the yield curve's not what it used to be 20, 25 years ago. I mean, we used to have this huge thing that curved up with incredible progressive power, whereas now it all seems a little bit flat. But nonetheless, there is life in the old yield curve dog yet. Look, I think that's right. But I think that someone told me um, recently that that they were surveying their trading uh, desk and they looked down at their trading desk and they were looking at all of their Euroswap traders. And they said that not one of their Euroswap traders had ever seen an increase in rates in Euro markets. And so we've definitely been in a spot where the curve has got flatter. We've had sort of sterling markets pricing out negative, maybe even up to five year point. It's like the, these things are very different structures, very different pricing points to when I grew up and was trading this stuff. And I mean, look, I. I know I said I look like Daniel Craig, but I'm, I'm probably nearly the same age as him. And so that was a long time ago. And so the reality is that um, you, um, I think we do need to look at the fact that the, the curve is different and the volatility is different and the shape is different. So do you need different tools? Do you need different benchmarks? And I would argue, yes, you do. And therein is the opportunity for Curve and others to, um, to, to, to add some value to customers in that space. And that raises a very interesting question, because indeed, you know, intergenerationally, I can show my own grey hairs here. I'm one of those people who managed to buy and make money on interest rates at 15% in sterling suckers on one particular day, if you can remember that one, children. So if you're looking at that whole business, it's quite fascinating. Do you think also that in the modern electronic age, people are a lot more granular about what they're trying to capture in terms of the risk transfer than they were maybe 20, 30 years ago when we were all shouting at each other in pits? That's a great question. And um, um, I'm not sure is the honest answer. Maybe in some extent, I think that if you look at um, you look at, say, a bank, the number of curves that they're marking to, it's not just sixes, threes, twelves. It's not just the LIBOR versus Sonia or versus Benchmark or whatever you've got for your balance sheet. So there's definitely much more complexity in the bank space. But in terms of the electronic algorithm stuff, I, I'm, I'm way out of date now. But I think often it's about 
is it going up or is it going down? Is it going left or is it going right? I'm, I'm not sure that, that people are still super focused, to be honest, about whether whether there's some fundamental, sorry, some technical driving it as opposed to some fundamental driving it. And so I think there are interesting challenges. And I think that one of the things that I expect people to make money on in, in, in future markets is, is understanding the technicals of this Sonya and SOFA transition and translating those into a yield curve shape and seeing where there are opportunities to buy and sell across the curve um, versus expectation. And I, I suspect that that is a, a place that we're going to see lots more business and trading done over the next 12 to 18 months as we go through this transition. And that's obviously a great opportunity for you and for all the other interest rate platforms because it can drive some exciting business. Yeah, look, and and that's why I said earlier on that I feel like when we talk about the the competing in the futures market, I feel like it's really early days. And I feel like we were first there. We're probably about 20, 25 percent of the market share in that Sonya product now. But I mean, that's three big trades away from being 50 to 70 percent of the market. It's really early days. And so that's why it's quite exciting, because because there's all to play for. And when you're talking to people who are worried about things, it's like, I tell you what, I think we better be with those curve guys because, do you know what, they, they've, they've got a good product on this Sonya stuff. And I like the idea of there being competition. And so that's the kind of thing that, and we, you know, all of a sudden, yeah, connecting to Curve is a compliance project associated with access to Sonya, right? It's like we have the ability to change markets because people are focused on change. And so going back to John's question, I think that's an exact, um, exactly the right question and, and why we're looking at it through that lens. Yep. And that was exactly what I was thinking in relation to Jonathan's question myself, actually. I mean, hashtag it's complicated, but also hashtag it's competition and it's a huge opportunity across the board. Ladies and gentlemen, we are into the last seven minutes of this evening's fascinating live stream with Andy Ross, who's the boss of the London Stock Exchange Group's Curve Global competitor platform in the interest rate marketplace. We've been talking of all sorts of things, exciting topics. I must say I'm particularly struck by the interesting idea. It may be a moonshot bit at the moment, but if we end up with no deal whatsoever, could it be that there will be a boom future trading in London once again with some degree of liquidity? Well, that takes us all back to the last millennium. If you've got a question, knock it into us in the course of the next few seconds. In the meantime, I mean, Andy, what I hear is just a cornucopia of opportunity. And the interesting thing is, it doesn't strike me that it's directly competition of eating somebody else's lunch. It seems the whole new interest rate world is very, very much one where the pie could grow quite significantly. Look, I, 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 precisely. So I think that's right. And so if there's one message that I could give is that if you want the market to change, you're responsible for that change. We're here. We are delivering change in the market. We have a, a liquidity. We have availability of the touch. We have a huge development plan of, of, of new products and ideas to come. But if you want change, you need to engage with that change because it is in your interest to do so. And we're not saying we want to replace anybody. We're saying we want to change the market to be symbiotic with all of the existing participants in it to give you more choice, to give you more control, to give you a better way of controlling your costs and fees and structures. And, and that's right. And I think there are plenty of examples in futures markets where that is the case. If you look at oil markets, you have cash versus physical between CME and ICE and, and, and vice versa. Um, 
And so there are plenty of examples of, the, of, these, uh, of these situations that can exist. And so we believe that we have an opportunity here and we believe we're going to deliver on it. That's absolutely a fascinating manifesto for the Curve Party and the growth of the derivatives industry as a whole. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's absolutely fascinating. Definitely, I'm getting comments on Twitter. You could sell definitely fridges to Eskimos with those sorts of uh, devices, Andy. You've got the ability to inspire us and intrigue us. So tell us just in a couple of minutes, you've told us there's a huge opportunity. There's an amazing possibility which includes Curve in the world. What do you think is actually going to happen in the course of the next few months because, or the next few years? Because it's a risk and opportunity strewn environment between Brexit in three months, LIBOR in 14 months and beyond. Look, so, so first of all, thanks for the question. I, I, think the, I, think, I think the number one fear I have is that we are knocked off track and not significantly off track for economically for uh, potentially a, a generation as a result of, of, of mismanagement of, of COVID. And I think that is a huge headwind that all businesses, whether they're big or small, have around, around the world. And so if we take the glasses half full and that we, that we don't see a significant uh, second wave in terms of, of uh, deaths as opposed perhaps to cases, and we, we don't see um, a significant, therefore, impact to markets, I believe there's a huge opportunity to, to galvanize around a number of these LIBOR changes and, and the development of, of new technology. The fact that we've all worked from home for the last six months, and as I mentioned, we ran an exchange seamlessly, and I mean seamlessly, for those six months with no outages. And, and I don't want to crow, not everyone did that. But, you know, pretty much everyone's had a good time, even those who had an outage, I think still done a phenomenal job. And so the reality is we've done that seamlessly. But that is hugely going to change, um, I believe, uh, market structure. So are we going to get more digitization of assets? Are we going to get more electronification of trading? Are we going to get faster um, connectivity? Are we, how is that going to develop? And Bill Gates, who... Um, I think you've got to just admire in, in, in any sense, says that in the um, short term, things don't change as much as you think they do. But I'm probably butchering this quote. But in the long term, they change much more than you thought they would. And so the reality is, I suspect COVID is a huge transitional change piece for market structure in ways that I perhaps touched on a few. But I suspect there's 50 that I haven't even thought about yet. Yes, it's very interesting. It's sort of in the middle of that Greek letter thing. I mean, Gamma never seems to be terribly exciting and Delta never seems to be terribly exciting until it suddenly collides with your beta, at which point in time it hits your alpha. And then all of a sudden, well, life has fundamentally changed. Now, that's a fascinating point upon which I think we're going to be running out of time, Andy, because certainly you've enlivened an incredible debate today. You've given us an absolutely fascinating insight into not just Curve, but the huge opportunity as you look to be a part of reshaping the derivatives marketplace. And I think it's absolutely intriguing. You've described yourself as, well, I'm going to slightly coagulate your sentences here, but you're the wholesaler with a hip 
Hippocratic Oath. You're looking to reduce people's margin. You've talked about the technological issues that are in markets, the regulatory issues, the tailwinds to not just Brexit and a whole series of other acronyms that have come out of the European Union and elsewhere, but obviously also the whole interesting LIBOR opportunity ahead. And on that front, I really want to say a huge thank you to our many engaged viewers this evening, and particularly those who've been asking questions. It's a delight to hear from industry experts around the world. Martin Watkins, thank you very much. Jake Pugh, great to hear from you as always. Both those gentlemen, of course, previously inspired guests on this show. And by no means least, Jonathan Seymour, thank you very much for your question. One thing, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be rushing off our production team. Thank you very much, Beata and Ola. They're actually in Warsaw this evening because they're running off now to the CEE, Central Eastern European X-Tech Awards. They're going to be judging where I will be judging virtually from my little eerie in Valletta. It's a very, very interesting and dynamic startup awards ceremony. Congratulations to Tom Barnhart and the team. It's been one heck of a year trying to put anything together and now with a judicious mix of social distancing and people in place themselves uh, able to operate over a two metre distance. It's going to be a very, very interesting event and a Goodwill Summit tomorrow. Thank you once again, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Patrick L. Young. If you'd like to catch the pith every day, it's in Exchange Invest. Go to exchangeinvest.com or find me on LinkedIn. And let's hook up and the possibility of a trial is yours. Don't forget also, Andy's got those What Happens After LIBOR sessions coming up next week through the London Stock Exchange Group's portals. You can catch him also on Twitter, on also LinkedIn, and the Curve Global team are everywhere there. And let me just leave you with one final thought this evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've talked about a lot of matters and we've come close to the fiscal universe on many occasions. The Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States of America this morning announced early doors. They're charging John McAfee, the man who famously is the eponymous name associated with a great deal of virus disposal on our computing technology the world over. McAfee has been fraudulently touting ICOs. Those are, of course, cryptocurrency offerings. And more importantly, the U.S. Department of Justice have demanded that the this morning arrested in Spain, McAfee, be extradited to the United States of America. He's been indicted for tax evasion, hiding cryptocurrency, a yacht, real estate and other properties in nominee names to evade taxes. Which, of course, ladies and gentlemen, leads us to only one obvious conclusion. He should have had the same tax advisor as Donald Trump. On that bombshell, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again, Andy. It's been a fabulous discussion with Andy Ross. This has been IPO Video Live 008. Next week, we're going to have a completely different guest. Murray Gunn's going to be talking about all sorts of issues in the world of technical analysis. My name is Patrick L. Young. Have yourselves a great rest of the day. Andy, Bata, and all the production team, thank you very much. Patrick L. Young saying, have a good